Alright, so this is episode 38, and I know I've said it before, but I'm actually quite terrible at introductions to these episodes. So I don't know what to say for this one, but I have my brother Steve here again. So he hasn't done this for almost a year since the last time, is that right? That would appear to be the math, yes. That would be the math. And, uh... Currently, we are in a building where beneath us, there's a children's daycare, and through the floor, we can hear them all screaming and booing and meowing because some of them are dressed as cats, or but they're making sounds like ghosts. That doesn't make sense to me. Happy Halloween! <laughs> right. Uh, but Steve is stateside, so I thought I had to grab him while I could. And, Steve, before we dive into anything, what has been a highlight since you've been stateside for the past two weeks? Oh, certainly, uh, yeah, I think I'd have to go with Wawa. <laughs> with Wawa? Yeah. Yeah. Because, again... I'm, Hold so, on. Because I actually have some people that listen from other countries... They yes. don't know what Wawa is. Right. What so, is that? So, Wawa is a convenience store. If you're in the UK, it's much akin to Greg's, I guess, but not quite Greg's. Something like a cross between Greg's and Tesco's. Uh, people in the States, you would think of it something like Sheets or Quick Trip if you're from the Midwest. Yeah. Or I forget which other one. Yeah, which I don't know what the West Coast has. Maybe West Coast has 7-Eleven, I think so. Might be, yeah. Okay. But Um, just a convenience store, that's all. So that's been your highlight. Well, I mean, no, I've (laughs) I've enjoyed just being back in the area, of course. Wawa is always nice to stop by and get things from Wawa. Uh, But admittedly, I mean, uh, it was nice to see the friends that I had visited at the tail end last Mm -hmm. week. It was nice to be out in Missouri and see some other people I hadn't seen for some time. Uh Um, And and it was, axe throwing was quite fun. On Saturday. Oh, right. Yeah. On Saturday, we went axe throwing. Yeah. And, well, you, I mean, what was that like for you? I've done that before, mm, mm. but. I mean, I, I, I mean, it itself was very fun. I really enjoyed it. I was also very much struck by, given my, my history as a customer service rep, uh, I was struck at how the instructor's were sort of gently corralling all of us. They gave us advice. They gave us hints. They were almost always like, yeah, yeah, good job, good job. But then they also knew uh, how to pit people against each other or how not to do it. Uh-huh. So, like, they were they were constantly checking in on every single person just to see uh, if that person was getting frustrated, if they were having fun, if they were doing who knows what. Uh-huh. Uh, so like the kill shot, you know, they had the, the bullseye, sure. And then there are two other ones that were painted like pumpkins for the season, where if you called out kill shot ahead of time, everybody who worked there, if they heard kill shot, they would just as loudly go, kill shot! Uh, <laughs> and it was a very subtle way of uh, making everybody else really excited for a kill shot. Yeah. It was like a, a rally cry. Yeah. 
even if you weren't at that lane throwing at that bullseye, everyone yeah. else knew, like, whoa, something big's happening over there. Yeah, and I think probably the fact that you had, you had to call it out ahead of time. So it was either worth almost double the points of a bullseye or it was worth nothing. Uh, Whereas otherwise you're just you're throwing at a board and you're sort of going, well, I hope it sticks. This time you're going, well, I hope it sticks on this really small area. And if it does, you lose your mind. And everybody else does too. But like... When I walked in there, I didn't think I'd be that committed to, uh, <laughs> to uh, hitting axes. a yeah, to throwing an axe at a pump, a small painting of a pumpkin. <laughs> but within twenty minutes, half an hour, I was just like, no, no, I gotta, I gotta get it. I gotta, I gotta get that ten pointer. Right. Hmm. So yeah, that was pretty good. That was a good time. Yeah. It was also good being down at LBI mm-hmm. visiting your parents. But when we were down there, I asked you what you thought was your specialty. Yes. So, like, obviously you have studied an undergrad theology. Mm. In grad school, you also got a THM at Villanova. Mm-hmm. I, it's just, a, it's actually an MA, but yeah. Oh, an MA? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. It's a, was it a Master's of Sacred Theology? Was no. that the title? No, no, it was just, um, it was just a Master's in Theology. Master's of Sacred Theology, an M. MST, I guess it is. Um, those have to be from Vatican-accredited institutions. Um, and Villanova, I guess, is not, at least for that particular set of uh, uh, criteria. Right. Yeah. So for people that have no idea what theological method is, mm-hmm. how would you define theological method? If that's your specialty, put that in modern-day lingo that even a teenager could understand. What's theological method? Sure. It's scientific method. Again, a lot of what I'll do, the, w- the way that makes a lot of these sorts of conversations easier is by doing what sometimes is called a, a code shift. So you talk about the same idea in a different quarter, a different realm of thinking. So you talk about an anthropological idea in, I don't want to say a something to do with chemistry. And just by getting oh. the difference, you have, I said this to you a couple of days ago, or maybe yesterday, you have something like a parallax. Well, give, giving you the distance gives you perspective as well. So trying to define something with a different vocabulary than yeah. it usually has. Yeah, so that you're not getting bound up in the vocab. So the language isn't necessarily oh. an impediment. So that the moment I say theological method, people will either latch onto the theological or the method part. The moment I say scientific method, everybody has a sort of already defined set of thoughts about that. Because uh-huh. we all sort of think, oh, scientific method. Oh, okay. It's, it's that thing we did in elementary school or middle school, mm-hmm. sort of like that. And it brings up a number of different associations, which, again, that's, that's the field I play in, given that what I did at Edinburgh was a degree in science and religion. So I'm yes. constantly looking at how these things align or don't align. And the reading I've done for TFT, uh, Thomas Forsyth Torrance, has, I mean, a lot of what he wrote about was on scientific method and theological method and how those things really are more aligned than they are different. Uh. Yeah. The takeaway that he gets, or the, the money quote he frequently refers to, comes from a chemist turned philosopher of science named Michael Polanyi. Mm-hmm. And Polanyi's phrase goes along the lines of, the object you seek to know determines the way in which you know it. 
Okay, so let's break that down. Yeah. So, if, if theological method is kind of paying attention to the way that you think and talk about God, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, how would you say modern, the modern view of, of God is doing? Is the modern view of talking and thinking about God, is it, are we doing it well in the West? Is American culture doing okay at it? Are we doing really poorly at it? Because it's really difficult to do scientific inquiry on something that can't be reproduced in the lab, like the scientific method. So anyways, how, how is the West in your estimation, doing at thinking about God and talking about God? Well, I, I think I'm sort of on some measure bound to say that we're doing, we're not doing as well as we ought to or could do. That, that <laughs> seems to be something that follows right out the gate. Uh, although, we could always be doing better. Yeah, uh-huh. of course. Um, I would note as well, though, you say that it's interesting that you move straight to reproducibility. Which I agree. That's uh-huh. that's one of the, the hallmarks that you should be able to reproduce any given results you right. get from a test. Of the scientific method. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh, there was an article that came out, I forget how recently, probably a couple months ago now, that noted the uh, striking inability of a lot of scientific studies to be reproduced. Oh, so scientific method, things are not... Well, it's just that uh, what? we're becoming more and more aware that uh, just because you can test something once, even as rigorously as, as we can now, doesn't always mean that it's as easily reproducible. And if it's not as easily reproducible, maybe there are some other figures that have been at the start of these various experiments that we're not aware of, that are also conditioning what we do, and that to be missing right. them, like to try and reproduce an experiment that takes place in the Northeast, a sociological experiment that takes place in the Northeast of the U.S., uh-huh. but then to move it to 100 miles south, it might be wildly different, or it might not be as easily the right. same, because there are conditions like, in that example, uh, even, say, political differences, or that mm. the demographic you're reaching to has a different language about X, Y, or Z, political mm-hmm. or theological or whatever. As it pertains to method outright and how you know the U.S. is doing, I mean, A, it's monolithic. It's huge. The U.S. is huge, so we have to remember that it's always going to be a little fragmented. There's always going to be many people with different ideas, and that in many cases, we are using... We're stuck between having personal lingo and technical terms that we ourselves use and public lingo and that sometimes there's going to be a difference between the two which is so the way that people talk about god in private might be different from how they might talk about god in public is that what you said yes but even that there's how you know person a might think a and say b sure or mean b but person D might use God, the, the, the word God, with a different set of associations. Yes. And because uh-huh. of that, we have to, we're always trying to mitigate between 
any technical view that we might use. So if I were to use a technical term like um, perichoresis. Yes, okay. I mean, that's a that's a fairly technical Trinitarian theology term uh-huh. that even amongst people who know the term, they'll have differences of opinion as to what exactly it means and how it's used. Right, so like some people would inter- might interpret that as... Uh dancing around mm-hmm. and other people might see it as mutual indwelling mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and then some others might have a third one yeah. so they might all use that same word mm-hmm. but they mean different things by that one word yes and it's it's further made problematic it's it, it, this is something i'm still working out it's a pet idea that we have different spheres of knowledge that we've developed over the last centuries so think about Physics, chemistry, anthropology, psychology, politics, and theology even. Right. And if we think of each of these as sort of a a disc laying on top of each other, that have their own discrete sort of realms of meaning with their own discrete language that they use, Mm -hmm. problems might arise in one of these discs that get resolved, but that whatever that resolution is, it doesn't percolate to the rest of them. So, like, if, if you change the way you talk about politics, mm-hmm. it's going to, it has to affect the way you talk about anthropology. It has to affect the way you talk about technology, theology, mm-hmm. sociology. Yes, I think that follows. Yeah. So we are, we tend to put our different fields of study in boxes and we don't really let them talk to each other? Or we I think so, don't yeah. want to admit that they influence one another? Uh, I'm I'm uncomfortable phrasing it quite like that, because that that lends more of a I think it's it's more unconscious than that. It's just that it's really really difficult to make these things uh, explicit and obvious. Yeah, and consistent across all the all the the, okay. the discs, as it were. To yeah. go back to that metaphor, and that takes a lot of I mean that takes really really hard work to be able to make these connections because oftentimes we're using language and categories and assumptions. Uh, and prejudices of various kind that we have been given ourselves from uh, our parents and our community and our uprising, uprising, uh-huh. whatever else. So, I mean, it's 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 a bit like trying to see the entirety of a room while standing in the room. In the nature of the case, uh-huh. there's always going to be a little bit directly behind your eyeballs, even if you're pressed against the wall. You'll see a lot of the room, but there's a little bit you won't. <laughs> right. Yeah. And having to make uh, course adjustments for that is really, really difficult. But to get back actually to the point of the question of how I think Americans are doing or the West is doing with yeah, it. Yeah, how is the West doing at doing theological method and thinking and talking about God? I suspect, and I'll, 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 I'll limit it even a little further. When we talk about the West, I'll say it to Christians outright. So just as we're talking within the realm of people who are consider themselves Christians. Uh-huh. They frequently the method tends to be that you either work from the language changes but usually it's something like from below to above, from above to below. And in other quarters that's talked about where they say they think about theology from man to God or from God to man. That's another sort of code shift. We're talking about it in a different uh-huh. frame of reference. Uh 
if we're talking as far as so wait, so like people either talk about God from the perspective of humans mm-hmm. or they'll talk about God from the perspective of God. Yes, from a sort of inferred or, or right. um, it's it's a kind it's actually a kind of abductive argument. So an abductive argument is an argument to best explanation or to best mm-hmm. understanding. Mm-hmm. So we go well it appear it would appear that God thinks in this way. So on account of that we would reckon that a from God to man theological method would say X, whatever that is. But on line with that, you also have inductive and deductive. So these likewise line up, mm-hmm. albeit in the language of philosophy and epistemology, but they line up still in the same sort of top-down or bottom-up stuff. Right. And that alone, that also conditions a lot of how and what we think about. Right. So if I were to, um, I guess, kind of pull some of this together, Mm -hmm. some of the biggest challenges to talking about God are sometimes we don't recognize that our view of society, our politics, our technology, Mm -hmm. all of these things influence the way we talk about God. That's one thing that we may not recognize. Mm -hmm. Another is sometimes we don't, um, recognize that different people mean different things by the same words. Mm-hmm. So one person might say church, but two people might interpret that word very differently from the person who just said the word yes. church. Um, what are some other obstacles to talking about God that you see? Frequently we'll use, in addition to what might be sort of uh, horizontal differences. So people using terms differently, right? Oh, people using the same word different yeah. meanings. Okay. Yeah, if we, if we want to call that horizontal differences, uh, you can also run into vertical differences where people are pulling ideas that are too sophisticated into a realm where it doesn't necessarily need to be oh. or where it's, it's unhelpful to be. Or they'll try and take uh, a really sort of plain sense or common idea and try and pull that somewhere else. So frequently, this is the sort of thing that we'll yeah, see we'll with... Yeah, be an example of that. Yeah. yeah, that would be like... I mean, Bill Maher does this quite frequently. Whenever he wants to lend blast uh, Christians, he'll say, yeah, but you just believe in like uh, a crazy sky being who demands uh, circumcision and whatever else. Uh-huh. Or, or, I mean, he, he basically is setting up kinds of straw men Right. That, in the nature of the case, I mean, biblical interpretation about Genesis 1, for example, mm-hmm. to say that it's it's merely, a, to only say that it could be a literal seven-day creation, for example, and for him to use that as an enemy to, mar- to kick down and say, oh, see, you're stupid and you're crazy and your religion is primitive, whatever else, is a way to take a very blunt argument. It's like bringing a, a, a cudgel in when you need a scalpel. <laughs> so sometimes people will take a, a primitive or an undeveloped way of looking at things and bring it into the conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When, so I, I understand that sometimes people will blast pastors or theologians or people at church for the way that they view God. Mm-hmm. But actually, in the past 2,000 years, the church has moved far beyond that primitive view of God. 
In some ways, yeah, I yeah. think so. I mean, because it's uh, the claim to primitive primitivism mm-hmm. is always one I'm a little cautious of. To say that they are automatically more primitive just because they existed before us. Oh, sure. Because uh, it also, again, t- making those claims usually is bound up in a, in a lot of enlightenment assumptions and enlightenment sort of baggage and that we just sort of have. Uh-huh. Uh, that what we have now is obviously the best. Yeah. Or which, better. I mean, in some ways, sure. I mean, technologically, yeah, we've made huge, tremendous advances. Uh-huh. But... I can imagine easily somebody from centuries ago seeing, I don't know what, something that we might do here and see it as a tremendous moral failure. Oh, that's right. Uh-huh. So it's just, you know, the, the, uh, I think we should give even the people we're calling primitive a fairer shake, a more sure. fairer shake than what sure. we tend to do. But that means, that goes back to the idea that sometimes we bring baggage along into conversations that didn't need to be there. Sure, yeah. Or like yesterday at Sunday school, uh, there was a youth that mentioned, how do they phrase it? I had asked whether or not souls are created. You know, normal Sunday school stuff. Normal Sunday school. Normal Sunday school For teenagers. (laughs) The guy with two master's degrees is talking to the kid that hasn't graduated high school yet about these things. Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, uh, I had asked this. I put it out on the floor. And I was amazed, A, how quickly people decided to answer anyway. Because usually if it's a strange enough question, like I tend to ask, it will take time for people to process it and to think about it. And they might not even answer. Whereas one youth said outright, yes. Or he said, no, um, he said, no, it's not. Our souls are not created because our souls are spirit like the Holy Spirit is. And I thought, wow, that's very interesting. <laughs> but that's also an instance where you're taking a fairly sophisticated idea like doctrine of the Holy Spirit mm. and pulling it down to a, a, a question that is, I think, far more properly fundamental like just a, a sort of simple question: Are souls created, uh-huh. yay or nay? Do they belong to the category of created being, or do they belong to the category of naturally self-existent, eternal being? Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. Which that's that's an important question. That's a big question, especially once we start to play that against Christian conceptions of creation ex nihilo, for example. Right. And what you might say is a sort of Christian cosmology. Hmm. And all of a sudden, if the moment I get somebody who could say, yeah, I think ex nihilo is the case, sure. But I also think souls are uncreated. You go, well, but that's an interesting little, we're, we're at cross purposes with ourselves. And it's an instance where I think his method, for example, the method may have that followed. high schooler. Oh, yeah. Okay. The method his may method. have followed. His thinking followed. Right? For him to say, no, I don't think souls... Are, I think souls are uncreated because souls are spirit and the Holy Spirit is spirit. So the linking term is spirit. Okay. And spirit, spirit uh, the Holy Spirit is uncreated and as spirit, is uncreated as spirit. And therefore, my spirit is likewise uncreated. That follows. That, that actually seems right. fairly straight through. Uh, but that, that it follows does not necessarily mean it is true. <laughs> So that could be another challenge to thinking about God mm-hmm. that some people may not recognize. Just because it seems to make sense doesn't mean it's not necessarily the way it is. Correct. Yeah. 
I mean, in many of the well, ways... That, that, that would be like the scientific method. Mm-hmm. You always have to be ready to adapt your view mm-hmm. to the new evidence or to the new information that's coming in. Yeah, this is, this is otherwise called the principle of revisability. Oh. That, that any so, claim... So would that be like... Okay, so in Presbyterian circles, mm-hmm. it's churches are supposed to be reformed and always reforming. Mm-hmm. So a lot of churches find their identity, at least Protestant churches, find their identity in the Reformation, mm-hmm. which we just celebrated yesterday. Yeah, yesterday <laughs> I was didn't... the 500th anniversary. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that principle of and always reforming, is that the principle of revisability? I think so, you yeah. You should always be... You should always allow your view space to grow, to adapt, to mm-hmm. evolve, to what? Yeah. yeah. I mean, this is, this, is the, this is the point of saying that all of our thinking, uh-huh. from our thinking about theology to our thinking about how atoms are or are not, mm. has to have a sort of inbuilt openness, an inbuilt chance to change. Just because right. the moment it starts to close off is the moment we start to get the kind of responses we see in fundamentalists, be they religious fundamentalists or any kind of other fundamentalists. Right. On the left or the right. Yeah. Which, um, it's very striking when I see that. Like, uh, I've, I've heard plenty of people make fundamentalist claims against fundamentalists. And I just, <laughs> I figured it wasn't worth... It, you know, at a bus stop or something, it wasn't worth necessarily bringing up that point. Right. That was perhaps too high of a talk to be having with a near stranger at a bus stop. Yeah, I heard uh, a few weeks ago I went and met Pete Rollins, and he said a definition of fundamentalism that I thought was really good. It was fundamentalism is wherever there is denial or repression or of uncertainty. Or doubt, mm. mm-hmm. and that way, that definition allows for fundamentalism on the left and the right. Whereas I think most people want to say the right is really fundamental because they repress and mm. deny their uncertainties by never engaging the questions. Mm. But you can also say the left does that. Mm. In some sense, fundamentalism on the left or the right have a f- I don't know if it's a fear of revisability or they just want to mm-hmm. say their view doesn't need to grow. Yeah. But I, I also think revisability, uh, it's easy for people to say, ah, oh, yes, revisability came about at the enlightenment when we realized that we need to just be able to test what we do and, and have things repeat, have a, a, a given response to a study be able to be repeatable. Uh-huh. And I don't know that that follows. I don't know that revisability is this new occurrence out of the Enlightenment. Because mm. uh, it seems to me that there is a great deal of that kind of thought structure, albeit without the name of revisability, already existent in Christian thinking, in Christian spirituality, and Christian theology. Because that seems to me largely cognate, albeit using a different language, to how Christians talk about repentance. To change your mind. Yeah. Yeah. So again, that's... Yeah, that, that's that's the that's the um, etymological draw right. thing that we draw out of the New Testament term for repentance. So which, for for people that don't know, the word metanoia, the mm-hmm. Greek word in the New Testament, 
We translate it as repentance, but it means... It suggests the changing of one's mind in the same way that to say that a butterfly goes through metamorphosis changes its form. Yes. Okay. So we, we're more apt to say <laughs> you need to repent of your actions, not necessarily repent and change your mind about your ways of thinking of God. Could be, yeah. Is that... I think that's that could be fair, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it also comes to the fore. For me, and this is this is totally a pet thought. This is something I, I have no backing for other than just initial connections that I need to research further before I make any authoritative claim to them. But <laughs> if it is indeed the case that the New Testament, the era of the New Testament, was sort of, broadly speaking, platonic, Right. Uh, so if spiritual physical split. Yeah, if if Roman and Greek ideas were sort of in the air of the New Testament and as such have found their way into the language of the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Then you have this sort of mind and body split, sure, where body is the thing that's changeable and malleable and in some measure defective. Yeah. Right. Well, we, however we say it, it's in some measure defective. Some we'll people say that. fallen. Some yeah. people say. We'll leave that just sort of undefined for now. Okay. Uh, but the, the upstart is that it changes. It can change. Whereas mind cannot. Mind is aligned with the forms. Mind is aligned with unchangeability, uh, aseity, with, if with we're God. using it. With God. With God. Again, consistent. when we're using this sort of platonic grammar to ground how we think. Which means there's a very subtle and very interesting thing going on in repentance, in the New Testament version of repentance, because they are saying that mind, i.e. the thing that is unchangeable, can change. Which, uh, I mean, on a very, even, even to the level of grammar, and then to the level of epistemology, and to the level of cosmology, that is cutting directly against the grain mm. of a sort of platonic frame of mind. Yeah. So this idea, so to like to bring it back to like mm-hmm. theological method and how you talk about God. Yes. You, the New Testament even gives space for this new idea that you can have a changing view of God. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, certainly. Uh, let me look at the the apostles with the resurrection of Christ. Okay. Yeah. So they had seen. Or there's, you know, there's records of the raising of Lazarus. Great. But there seemed to be something different, fundamentally different going on with the resurrection of Jesus, even from the gospel accounts. The gospel accounts of the resurrection of Jesus give more detail than they do of the resurrection of Lazarus. Mm. Uh, And in many ways, this is, and this is a thought from T.F. Torrance, even back to the verbiage that's used in reference to the miracles. So anytime he, he talks about the verb for being raised up to raise up somebody, either when we talk about raising up like resurrection or we talk about the physical act of raising somebody up, giving them a hand oh. and lifting them up from the ground or something. Mm. TFT saw that the same verb is being used across all of them. And to his mind, it was, he inferred that all of the miracles to the mind of the apostles, as they were right of the Gospels, all of the miracles fall within the orbit of the resurrection. So for oh, Jesus to say, uh-huh. Get, take up your mat and walk, take up, raise up your mat uh-huh. and walk, the sort of 
might see the power of it, comes from and is grounded out of the resurrection. Mm-hmm. Again, that before people think that I'm doing funny time travel things, we should also note that the Gospels were written after the fact. So this is them looking through the resurrection and understanding these past experiences. Yeah, these past experiences, which before then might have looked a great deal like faith healings, which were fairly frequent back then. Uh-huh. So you said something that reminded me of uh, the parable that I told you earlier about the Amazonian scout. Mm-hmm. I told you that one, right? Uh, is this the time travel one? No. Oh, wait, no. Okay. All right. So the Amazonian scout, and then I'll, I'll say the moment that I think mm-hmm. kind of applies here. So there's a tribe down in the Amazonian forest, mm-hmm. and they're rather secluded, mm-hmm. but they're growing, they're expanding, and they need more horses in order to continue growing and to gather all the things that they need and to hunt. Mm-hmm. So the chief tells their tribe scout, hey, we know that you've been going out and making maps of the whole area. Is there a chance that you have seen horse hooves anywhere? Mm-hmm. He says, oh, yeah, absolutely. He's like, great. You have three days. Go and catch us. At least one, because then we could use that and whatever. Mm-hmm. So the first day, the scout goes out, and he looks at his maps, and he says, I think I remember seeing horse hooves out over this place. Mm-hmm. So he walks over a mountain, a plain, another mountain, another mountain, and he gets to another plain, and there he sees the hoof prints. Day two, he sees that these hoof prints are kind of in a pattern, kind of in a circle, whatever you want to say. And day three, he decides to set a trap for this horse and lay in wait for it. Mm-hmm. And in laying the net, he backs up and gets trapped in another trap that he did not set. Mm-hmm. And as he's being caught there by this net that he did not set himself, uh, he sees four legs come on over of a horse. And he's thinking, oh, man, what a mockery. Mm. <laughs> And so as he turns his head to look up at this horse that he's been tracking, he sees a centaur looking down at him as the centaur (laughs) leans down and says, I've been tracking you for three days. Mm. (laughs) Okay, but that moment right there, um, that scout had to, he came with an idea of what he was looking for. Mm Mm-hmm. And then when the reality of what was in front of him was there, he had to either, one, try to force the reality around him to match his worldview, mm-hmm. or he decided he would have to choose, I have to change the way I've been thinking about this creature. Mm-hmm. And to me, that sounds kind of like metanoia, or like having a, a view of God that's constantly growing or... Um, improving is that when when new things come along are you going to stick to your old view or are you going to try to incorporate this more accurate view of god into your Mm. life yes so is is that you see like the moment right there yeah yeah no like that that, i think is a very clear sort of that's a clear moment of him changing his mind to then match the evidence that's before him that's seen by him what also the the thing I fear sometimes with it, though, is that we are very quick. This is another one of my ridiculous things I'd love to research, but I don't know when I'd have the time to do it or how to even begin researching it. But the degree to which uh, I think 
supersessionism between Judaism and Christianity is a really, really interesting topic. Not what does just, that mean, yeah. supersessionism? So supersessionism, of course, is this, this idea that whatever happens in Christianity, whatever happened with the life of Christ, was sufficient that we can sort of disregard Judaism. I mean, in, in some mm. ways it's been used to make really anti-Semitic kinds of arguments yeah. over the course of the last 2,000 years. Uh, but if we, if we code shift for a second and we take that same notion that there's a new thing and an old thing and we get rid of the old thing. Mm. So if we then take that and sort of secularize it, that sounds an awful lot like forms of well, scientific advance where we say that whatever was in the past was old and was garbage. <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> Which is, a, I mean, it's, it's in one level, it's, it's really uncharitable to the people that were saying, well, this is garbage. Like, right. Um, and that ties in with this, this primitivism thing where we're just going, oh, just because it was back then it was, it right. was wrong or poor or whatever else. I heard um, someone talk about this. Uh, I want to say it was Ken Wilber talks about it as everyone has an adequate view of God, mm. but over your lifetime, you might change your view of God into something that's more adequate. Sure. Mm. <laughs> so it's not to say like supersessionism or like you look down or you insult mm. where other people are or even where you have been. Because mm-hmm. some people might look back at the way they've looked at God as a four-year-old and mm. be like, oh, I was so stupid. Like, sure. no, that was adequate. That was good for mm. the time. Mm-hmm. But is the view that you have now, is it adequate as well? Has it... I'm not sure what I'm trying to say. For me at this point, uh, a lot of the, of, of the waters are muddied because I'm just, I'm so far aware of the different, the, the horizontal and the vertical distinctions uh-huh. that are being used. So we mentioned that earlier, that I might be using terms differently uh-huh. and at different level, left different appropriate levels of rationality huh. so that I'm, I'm trying to get a handle on that before I make any more or many more statements with it. Uh-huh. But there's a point as well with this where we can take a sort of supersession line where we say the old thing is, is useless and, and get rid of it. Which is not what I just said. Correct. I yeah. said, no, that was adequate. Yeah. Or is adequate yeah. for some people right now. Yeah. We can take that sort of line, but that is also, I think, unfair to what actually goes on because there are still some assumptions we have, like even if we talk about it as far as the sciences are concerned, there are still some sort of properly fundamental assumptions we have that regardless of what what sets of ideas we throw out still hold true. So, for mm-hmm. example, I mean, the, the what I would mean by this one is uh, orderliness. That regardless of the fact that we've gone through hundreds of different kinds of uh, ideas about how the universe is or how cells work or how matter ignites, for example, we nonetheless have a thoroughgoing assumption that the universe as such is orderly in some way. We don't necessarily know what that orderliness means, Uh but there is a fundamental assumption that there is more order rather than less. Uh-huh. So there are still ways that we keep things uh, as a through line between whatever the old thought is and the new thought is. Right. Uh, this shows up in other language when we talk about uh, archways and keystones is a metaphor I've used before. Mm. So 
again, back, we'll talk with biblical studies language, that the Old Testament, as it were, forms a, an archway, a conceptual archway, mm-hmm. through which we apprehend God. And that that archway doesn't exist. It, it's just a bunch of rocks whose shape you can see, but you don't know how they fit together without a keystone. The top middle piece. Exactly. That's the, yeah. The, like it, it holds the weight of the arch by its placement. Exactly. Yeah. And, and of course, on a Christian reading, that top middle piece is going to be Jesus. It's going to be Jesus Christ. Right, the cornerstone. The, the, life, the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ. Right. Uh, but if you don't have an archway assembled, if it's just rocks on the ground, of course you're not going to see orderliness. You're just going to see a bunch of oddly shaped rocks that don't mm. necessarily fit together. Yeah. So there's a very clear relationship I think that has to hold between the Old and the New Testament, mm-hmm. and that we will neglect. I mean, oftentimes we neglect if we take too hard of a supersession line, mm. which is why you know I, I will say, yeah, it's tough, but maybe we should read through Leviticus more. <laughs> not, <laughs> maybe we should read Leviticus more. Yeah, not, not necessarily because we want to be able to take laws and say that you've done something wrong. Yeah. That, I think, is clearly an uncharitable way to be using but, the text. But you could say that those are building the side pieces exactly. of the archway that lead to the keystone. Yeah. I mean, apart from a lot of the stuff you see in Leviticus. A lot I like of the, that. That's the, a good analogy. Oh, yeah. Or yeah, a yeah. visual. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Apart from a lot of the the cultic practices that go on in Leviticus that are recorded about how you, how you sacrifice and which animals you sacrifice for uh-huh. what things. Apart from that. I mean, it, you don't even have the tools with which to understand the crucifixion. Right. You, to, it, would ju- it just appears as a guy who's been murdered on a cross. Right. Yeah. So, if we've gone through some of the challenges to talk about God, what would you say, like for the mailman, for... Mm-hmm. The church organist, who's not a trained theologian, mm-hmm. for the high schooler, for the parent, what would you say are some tips to thinking and talking about God better? Mm. So how can the everyday person who doesn't have a double master's degree in theology yeah. uh, do better theological method in their sphere of life? Well, I'll, I'll go back to Polanyi's point. So Polanyi's phrase is that the object you seek to know determines the way in which you know it. Okay. Yeah. But I know even that can sound technical. So this is, I'll say that as a preface to this part. I don't go up to a rock mm-hmm. and talk to it as if it's human. <laughs> you might when you're two years old and have a sure. pet rock. Yeah. yeah. But... I understand. Yeah. But yeah. by and large, I don't go up to a rock and expect it to respond to me like a, a human would. Yeah. Nor do I necessarily go to a human and expect them to react to me like a rock would. Or true. we find instances where we might go to pets. Pets, I think, are neat examples because we treat them kind of like humans. But uh-huh. if a human treated me like a pet did, I'd be like, what? Like if, if a human treated me like a dog did, I would just sort of... <laughs> It's already funny to think about. You go, no, no, stop. To pet your head. and Yeah, it's just a little strange. Uh, So I think one of the easiest and probably most fundamental tips is to try and take, to be at least aware initially that uh, God does not fit in your head. 
Yeah. So that whatever that your your conception of God can change, and that's okay. <laughs> it can change, and that's okay. Yeah. So you just gave like a reality and then a comfort right there. Like yeah. the reality is your view of God will change, mm-hmm. and don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that our, uh, it, you know, if we do really believe, if we do really think the universe is orderly, uh huh, which it darn tootin' seems that way, right? <laughs> right. Or at least on some measure, the fact that we have so many things that that uh, even on the level on the level of matter and materiality, the stuff that the fact that stuff seems to hold together reasonably well. Mm. Uh, oh, I lost the thread. That we have things that remain orderly like this. It seems to me to follow then, I mean, argument from a lesser premise to a greater premise, if the world hangs together on the level of matter reasonably well, uh-huh. we can probably expect that God does, even if we want to hold to a view of God as dynamic rather than right. static. So Pollyani's statement of an object can only be known by, say it again? The object you seek to know uh-huh. determines the way in which you know it. Right. So that I, I, uh, I know a rock because of the rock presenting its rockiness to me. Right. So let's just mm-hmm. change the word to God. Yeah. Say that phrase again, but with God in there, the object. Instead say God. Yeah. The, the God you would seek to know reveals to you the way in which he would be known or that God would be known. Wow. Yeah. So again, for, for Christian telling, that's going to be in the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ, which automatically implies the Old Testament. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> which means you, you don't suddenly have just this very small sliver of, sure, 33 years, but you have this very large section of history right. that includes the entire history of the, the Hebrew people as they become Israelites and all the rest that feeds into this person yeah. at the very late stage of it. And then, then you can go a step further and you get to start looking at, and this is the hard part for Protestants, to start looking at the advances in the thinking of the church after Jesus as they tried to reflect on and understand and better right. have build better models of God. Right. Mm-hmm. Would um, another tip be this? So... I remember when I was hiking, I would have conversations with people around the bonfire. Mm. And some of them would say that they talk to the universe and they have a personal relationship with the universe. Mm. For me, who is raised in the church and considers myself a Christian, uh, I think at some point I might have said, wow, you are very different from me. Mm. But I think I've come around to this idea that, oh... Where I use the word God, you would use the word universe, but actually, in con- like conceptually, you and I actually mean the same thing. We actually use just different words. You have a personal relationship with the universe, quote-unquote. Mm-hmm. That sounds very much like people who go to church who say they have a personal relationship with God. Like, mm-hmm. Would you also say another tip might be don't get too caught up in the words, pay attention to the the meaning that the other person's using behind the word? When you're, when you're talking with other people, yes. Oh, yes. Because that, that's, that's the principle of charity at work, that you're being charitable towards the people you talk to. Uh, but when it comes to your own thinking, I think you should be willing to, to be even more critical. Be more critical of your oh, yeah. vocabulary than yeah. other people's vocabulary. Yeah, and so it's frequent that people make 
that same kind of statement that you make where they say, somebody says, I have a personal re- relationship with the universe. Yeah. Uh, but, and this, so this is that point coming back to the, the history of the church as it thinks about Jesus. There's a fairly strong stream running through the church that is church history that is resistant to too closely identifying God with the universe. Yeah, because I know that, that. that that was also in the air philosophically at the time. That what we mean when we say God is really just the universe in totality, which is a way of uh, making God the universe or the universe God. Whereas a Christian you know Christian reflection on the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ eventually drives them to not just creation ex nihilo. But what follows out of that is this conception of a God who is not the universe. Mm. Right. Because if we say God is the universe, you run into the possibility of saying that God is created, maybe? Oh. Uh-huh. And if there's a Christian claim that God is the creator rather than a created thing, uh-huh. there's an issue there. But again, that's, that's, that's not necessarily a talk I need to have with somebody at a bonfire where I go, you know, really? <laughs> let's have, a, word, let's have a, a fun talk about... Creation ex nihilo and homoousion and all the rest. Uh, right. But it's totally something I think about all the time. Because I, I, when I, whenever I do any of my sort of, whenever I do theology, whatever we mean when we say that, I have to constantly think. I'm constantly checking, sort of taking my temperature, as it were, mm-hmm. to see if whatever my thought is, whatever my line of thinking is, if it might be making this identification, this ident- identification of God in the universe, perhaps too closely. Yeah. 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 So give one last tip to someone that wants to try to think better and talk better about God. What would be one last thought? Yes, God defines how you come sure. to know God. Mm-hmm. Pay attention to pay more attention to your words mm-hmm. and give more charity to other people with their words. Mm-hmm. Um, what would be one last thing? Right. Uh, my last thing I think would be pray, but not just in the way that you've always prayed. So it's very easy for us to make <laughs> prayer okay. uh, talking, and I mean pray as listening, and as you know, we we try to make we tend to make uh, to produce a lot. A lot of what we try to yeah. do, especially especially with. Americans. A lot of it is about production, mm-hmm. about producing good grades, about producing right. good work, about producing, I mean, any number of things. We have this really, we have this sense of being active, where to be active and to be producing is what's really valuable. Whereas to be passive is you're sort of passive so that you can work more. Yeah. Rather than passive, maybe for the sake of being passive. Maybe, maybe it could be that rest is good just because it's rest. <laughs> right. Not because uh, but, it helps you work more. Yeah, and, and <clears throat> when we, to have that constant pressure to be producing, either producing physical things or producing less material things like grades or even producing better models of God, sometimes we just need to sit and sit with it for a while. Let it percolate and let sort of sleep on it. Sometimes you have an issue where you just need to put it in the back of your head 
and you're still thinking about it, even if it's not right in the forefront of what you're doing. Right. Yeah. So you're kind of saying meditate, contemplate. Sure. Rest in yeah. this mystery a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's great. I think at a future one, maybe mm-hmm. in a year. Sure, yeah, <laughs> next year. <laughs> we should, because uh, I know you like the split between physical and spiritual, but like this idea that we're not surrounded by energy or matter or spirit and matter as if they're separate. Maybe at some point we should ch- chat about how we are surrounded by spirit matter. Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll sound like not a... space or time. Yeah. There's space-time, the same way. There's not spirit and matter. There's spirit matter. I will sound like a crazy person. <laughs> but, yeah, sure. Right, but I, you know what? I think um, I've come around to that statement. Everything is spiritual. If only you have the, the depth of perception to see it mm-hmm. everywhere. Yeah. Which I'm not saying I do, but I certainly try, try failingly. But, anyways. Yeah, and I, I think the, the body and soul stuff, saying everything is spiritual, is a really neat moment where our, we're talking sort of science language, where our models are breaking down. Yeah. Our moder- models are ceasing to be functionally helpful. Uh-huh. And we're, 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 we've, we've still been at the point, I mean, this is throughout the course of Christian history, I think, that we're still trying to find a, a better unitive model. And we tend towards a sort of dualist model. Dualist or more. Yeah. Yeah. But that'll be for next year. Yeah, definitely. That'll be next that'll year. Be next time. Um, thanks. This yeah, is fun. Yeah, thanks for having me. And <laughs> thanks for having me. Yeah. yeah. Well, you are my brother. <laughs> not, that, <laughs> not that that's like yeah. the give and take away. Sure. All right. So to the listeners, I hope you enjoyed it. We'll catch you next time.